Good morning. For this time of prayer, at one point near the end of my prayer, I want to invite you to join me in a thing called the God Be In My Head prayer or the Serum prayer. Um, and this is a prayer that I've done before in different worship services, but mainly I remember doing it a lot at Passport while on staff. Every day in our morning devotion, before we did any kind of ministry, leaving, serving, eating, drinking, walking, doing anything during our day, we would gather for a devotion and we would pray this prayer, dedicating our, our head, our eyes, our mouth, our hearts, and our hands, and every, every, each one of these parts to the service of God. And so at the end of my prayer, I'll invite you to join me in this and guide you in dedicating each of our parts of our bodies to the service of God. Let us now pray together. Christ, our hope in life and in death, who we dare to boast about boldly without fear, and who we speak to freely without any barriers, our greatest desire is to be close to you. We proclaim your name out of the most honest love that we can give and long to know you deeper. With the time on earth that you have given us, we ask that you will forever walk with us and allow our every breath to sing your glory. Make every work yours and allow our every experience whether full of joy or full of sorrow, to be one in which we see you working and we see you with us. May all of our actions be fruitful labor which spreads your endless goodwill and allow us to be your ambassadors of faith. Here we are, Lord. Use us. We ask that through us Christ may be exalted by our one holy and united body, and that by every individual one of us, in life and in death, your glory is given. In this, the body of Christ, we offer up each skillful part and all that we have to be used for your ministry, that you may truly dwell in our thoughts and intentions and guide our hands and feet. I now offer up the God Be In My Head prayer, which we will use to center ourselves as instruments in your ministry. As I pray, I invite this congregation to receive blessing on each part of the body that we have, even resting hands on your head, eyes, mouth, heart, and hands as you feel led. As we dedicate each area of Christ's body to be filled with Christ's spirit and dwell, have Christ dwell with us in bringing about the work that Christ has set before us. Receive these words in this blessing and God be with us now. God be in my head and in my understanding. God be in my eyes and in my looking. God be in my mouth and in my speaking. God be in my heart and in my thinking. God be in my actions and my intentions. Amen.
as you dedicated all of those parts of your body and of your life to the activity of God, I hope that your anointed ears and your anointed hearts could hear all that has been shared today in worship. I was joking with those in the tech booth today that uh, as we ran through the hymns that we sang together and as I walked in and heard what the choir was going to be offering as an act of worship, I kind of wondered what was left to preach. After hearing the testimony of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi and across time and across space, now to us, let us hear everything the Spirit has to say through these words. Because in many ways, they wrap divine arms around everything in us. Our living, our dying, our bodies, our lives. All now held in love through Jesus Christ. The Apostle is writing as uh, as Danny told us this morning, from imprisonment. We don't know exactly where across the timeline of Paul's life is. Scholars have to have something to debate about. They love to debate about this. But generally, the consensus places the Apostle Paul run about the year 60 or so in the city of Rome. Several times in this letter, he references either the palace or the palace guard and all the way at the end, there's an astounding little throwaway statement that he makes. He says, greet all of God's people in Jesus Christ. The brothers, the sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Wait, what? Caesar? The gospel has made it all the way into the palace of power. And Paul is connected. And as a stunned onlooker in some ways, seeing how the Spirit is going to work, even in his no good, difficult circumstance. And it is a no good, difficult circumstance. Let's share verses 12 through 26. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance 
I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. These are powerful words written in prison. Words that go beneath our superficial tendency to want to make lemonade whenever life gives us lemons. And while some of us are just more naturally positive and others of us tend to see the dirty underside of all of our experiences, there is a vision that pierces through the apostle's uh, own perspective into his own life and into the affairs of his world that sees beyond the simple categories of prosperity or adversity. The apostle Paul in both sees the work of God. Reading these words this week took me back to Orange County Correctional Center, where a few years ago, uh, when our church was leading in, in worship one evening, I looked out and saw a, a familiar face that I could not place. And he was worshiping there in the midst of the population. And I, I could see him, and I could see him making eye contact with me, and his eyes opened a bit more, and mine opened a bit more, but it was that awkward, I know who you are, but I can't remember where, and I'm not going to be the first to embarrass myself. any rate, as we made our way through the service, as I talked a little bit and gave my own uh, testimony about how God was working in my life, I mentioned that years ago I lived in Smithfield, and at the end, uh, Smithfield, North Carolina. And as uh, the service concluded, this man came up to me and he said, you said you used to live in Smithfield. He said, I did too. And then all of my memories started sort of reassembling in my head. And I remembered, that's the guy who owned the coffee shop downtown and ran it. And I'd see him every single morning. Uh, but that was a side hustle for him. It was an investment because his paying job, and most of his work was really as a financial advisor. And, um, and then I remembered the punchline, why he was in prison. That for a season during the Great Recession, his face and his name were plastered all over the local news because he had become over-invested and over-leveraged in some of his own money-making efforts. He had bought some houses that he was going to be renting out. He had this business to run and everything else. So he started borrowing from the investments that belonged to his clients. Started out small, as embezzlement almost always does, and then eventually became large wholesale appropriation of people's accounts just to stay above water. 
he was caught, he was tried, he was found guilty, and he was given a 10-year sentence in the North Carolina prison system. Humiliating experience for a citizen and a church member at one of the downtown churches, a person of note, a citizen of note, known and loved by so many. And as he receded from daily life in Smithfield, so did his memory for me. But gosh, what was it like now, seven years into his sentence for me to be in the same prison as he was currently incarcerated? And he found me. And he talked a little bit about his experience, and we talked about the, the, we talked about the coffee shop, we talked about how his family was doing. And then he made a comment. He said, you know, I in no way wanted this to happen, but I cannot deny that God has worked through this experience for me. Of course, it got my attention and called me out of my sort of nominal, uh, nominal Christianity that where I wore Jesus sort of like a, a merit badge, where I'd use the language, but not really having learned to rely on him uh, had no scaffolding for an experience as wrenching and as debilitating as incarceration. And I had to discover that and found Jesus to be faithful. And even more, as I've examined my own life and tried to see how I can use even a no-good, humiliating experience like this out in the world, made a connection with one of the professors at the Fuquay School of Business, who invites him in as a guest lecturer to teach the lecture on ethics. And he, and he excitedly told me all about his PowerPoint presentation where he talks about the ethical standards by which those in, in this profession have to abide in order to stay not just above the law, but to take the very best care of their clients that they can. And uh, he says he lectures in a suit. He's allowed to, to get a suit for the occasion so that he fits into the business culture. He said, but the very last slide is a picture of me in my prison uniform. He say, if you don't do this right, there are consequences. I hope you can hear, even as I tell the story, not only the joy with which he expressed God's activity in his no-good circumstance, a circumstance that, if given the choice, he would roll back in a minute, but even more, how this moves deeper than simply superficially looking for a way to convert the lemons of his life to lemonade. It didn't shorten his prison sentence. It would not get him his license back. He would be severely impoverished, not just because he hadn't been earning across his time except for the prison wage, which is peanuts, but then also all of the civil litigation that came. He was losing, he lost everything. He's not going to gain it back just by doing good things now. This speaks of a different sort of conversion of a life that moves from being profoundly self-centered to being Christ-centered and opening up a life in such a way that says, Christ, do what you will with me so that your way, your news, your love, your hope, your faithfulness might somehow show out in that's what we hear from the Apostle Paul's story. 
one who in his chains is not in some sort of you know, masochistic way seeking out the worst possible outcomes for his life and hoping by some heroic gesture to show who Christ is, but understanding that as his life has played out and as his faithfulness to Christ has now led him crossways over against the powers that be in his culture, he must recommit daily to a life that says, Christ, be in me, show in me, and if it's my lot, to breathe my last. Let that also be a testimony to what you've done in my life. In some ways, though, there's no hard and fast rule to talk about this. When Janelle and I talk about sitting with those who know the end of their life is approaching, very often we can see the fruit of how they have invested their life showing up in those last days, hours, even minutes. And if we were to do it in shorthand, many times what I've seen with those who are near the end of their life is they die in many ways how they live. And what the Apostle Paul has now done is taken all of life and held it together to say that how we live and how we die aren't nearly as far apart as we want to believe that they are. I'll never forget going to visit Barbara Meyer, uh, very near the end of her life, sort of stumbling into her last hours quite by accident, was prompted to stop by her house. And I've told you this story to some extent before in pulling in. Her daughter met me outside, and she said, Mama's dying. I'm so glad you're here. And, and so I went in, and Barbara never opened her eye. Uh, but as she lay there in her bed, uh, and I went in and said, Christopher, she said, oh, honey, I'm so glad you're here. I love you so much. And those who know Barbara probably know that sound. And, and everyone that walked in received a greeting full of love. And she said, you know, I love that wife of yours. She's so special. She's great. I said, do, do you want to call her? So we called Janelle on the mobile. I held it up to her ear. And Janelle, you probably remember this. She just poured out love and blessing upon her in the last hours of her life. That was also the occasion of one of the more mystical experiences I had where, again, never opening her eyes, she could see the beloved departed saints of the Yates Baptist Church kitchen and fellowship table preparing a meal for her. Oh, there's Grace Pickett with her potato salad. It was that crystal clear. And as she, without opening her eyes, could see what was before her, she saw this community of saints, of friends, preparing a place for her at the table. It was one of the most vivid encounters I ever had that underwrote that sense of dying how we live. Because there was nothing, nothing in what I heard that surprised me or shocked me because it was so in keeping with the character of the person I had come to know. And so the Apostle Paul says to live is Christ. To die is gain. 
And we might be tempted in our contemporary church culture to put it on a mug, to put it on a t-shirt, to tweet it. And it sounds like a great life motto in a lot of ways. But we have to remember that the apostle is now speaking these words where they are with crystal clarity confronting his life. We believe he's in Rome. He's likely facing the prospect of his own execution at the hands of the empire. And the gospel to which he is clinging now, the very good news, is not just some sort of superficial hope that points just beyond his future. He's using the present tense. As I live, to live is Christ. To die is gain. And the fullness of his life is now wrapped up in this incredible awareness of Christ's presence and activity in his circumstance. And in many ways, that is the good news. That we don't live our lives in some way simply banking away on some future hope. But even when times become hard, maybe especially, we discover that our suffering and our pain is redeemed in the loving hands of a God who shares that pain, who shares that difficulty. And so our lives become, in many ways, centered around Christ, and we learn what that means. If you read on in Paul's letter, you see how thoroughgoing it all is. Christ is, is almost remarkably, in all of Paul's letters, at the center of his reflections to the Philippians. So in chapter 3, he shows us how Christ is at the center of anything that's worthy. In chapter 2, Christ is the center of thinking. At the beginning of chapter 2, Christ is at the center of all the ethical reflection of how they would live their life together. Also in chapter 2, in that great hymn of the ancient church, Christ is at the center of their worship. And here, Christ is at the center of Paul's own life. And turning and returning to that place that moves him from the center and replaces his own self with Christ is the pursuit of Christian life. And so we have to ask those questions that press us sometimes. What, what do we worry about? And what do we worry about most? And if I failed at something, or if I lost it, what would cause me to want to give up? Maybe even give up living. What do I use to comfort myself when things go badly? When times become difficult? What are the words or affirmations that make me feel worthy? If I had an unanswered prayer, what would that prayer be to make me think about setting down this whole God business once and for all? What do I expect out of my life? What would make me happy, however you would define happy? These are the kinds of questions that can root out deep in our own heart where Christ needs to be and where we have supplemented our own selves 
or our own needs instead of opening up for the surprising ways Jesus comes to work and work through us. I had a wonderful conversation the other night with a friend, a longtime friend here in Durham, a former professor at Duke, um, and now a widower. And for the last 10, 15 years, um, he has been almost entirely invested in her care. So much so, we weren't able to encounter him. We, we call and say, hey, can we come by? Now's not a good time. 10, 15 years, it was a long time long time they had the chance to hold two of our infant children we were able to break in once when benjamin was about two and that was the last time face to face we had these sorts of encounters and as we caught up he said hey, you know how did covid treat you and i said like a baby's diaper um and what i as i unpacked that what what i told him was i went through my own and i've talked to you about this my own sort of mental health and personal identity crisis when we broke ranks together. I was no longer able to do any of the outward expressions of being a pastor. I could preach, but I couldn't tell if anybody was listening. Uh, I could write letters, I could make calls, but I couldn't tell if people had, had the phone near or far, couldn't get into the hospital, couldn't get into people's homes. And, and that withering effect of feeling so alone and not being able to do all of the things that for the first 20 years of my career made me who I was in this role. I had an existential crisis. Who am I when I can't do the things that make a pastor a pastor? He said, you know, I've never thought of that. He said, but that really resonates with me. After his wife died, and he was a professor, so he inflicted Emil Durkheim on me. He said, Emil Durkheim talks about uh, what he calls anomie, which is the human experience when the guardrails of our lives, the things that sort of hold us down, hold us accountable, are suddenly removed. And we think that that means freedom. But it really is terrifying. And he talked about it in his own experience as a caregiver. After you build this rhythm and the sort of intimacy that comes of being a caregiver to someone else for so long, when one day that ceases, he says, I just lost my mind it scared me to death and the most unsympathetic people say oh well now you have all this time but you all know if you've walked that way you would trade everything for one more minute of time like that and we were also able to share how as we began to identify those places where we sought in ourselves the sort of worthiness the sort of affirmation that came either me from my vocation or uh, with him as a caregiver that there was now space for Christ to enter in and to breathe new life and new hope into us that we might find fruitful ways of telling even our painful story to testify to God's faithfulness And so for us, as we examine ourselves inwardly and find those places where we try to provide our own comfort or our own approval or seek our own control or our own power, ultimately it is likely that life is going to break us of those things. And we'll need to find our approval, our control, our power, our comfort somewhere else. And it comes 
says the gospel from a relationship. Not a relationship that's formed at the end of our days, but a relationship that is cultivated in the living of our lives so that we might experience fullness in this life and assurance of the, in the next. The amazing good news of Jesus Christ is that God in Christ has entered into our experience, into our lives, inhabited a body like ours and has shared the fullness of it. Even death. And in living his life in faithfulness to God, God has vindicated the way of Jesus by raising him to new life. And that is something in which we can share also. The empathy of God is such an astounding thing to imagine. You may remember, um, gosh, it's how many years ago now when Mitch Albom wrote Tuesdays with Maury, a wonderful book about a man returning to a professor from his student days who was dying from ALS. And as he asked his professor, Maury, about the experience of his own suffering, he wrote these words, it's hard to explain, Mitch. Now that I'm suffering, I feel closer to people who suffer than I ever did before. The other night on TV, I saw people in Bosnia running across the street getting fired on, killed, innocent victims, and I just started to cry. I feel their anguish as if it were my own. I don't know any of these people, but how can I put this? I'm almost drawn to them. That's a picture in our experience of what we try to proclaim each and every week about what God has done in Jesus Christ, in his living and in his dying. He identifies with us and identifies God with us in a way that we can know and discover and uncover and recover and even more sustain us and show out to the world. Not a sort of false stoicism, or heroic risk-taking, but instead a peace that passes understanding that says, like Paul did, if I live, I live to the Lord. And if I die, I die to the Lord. So that living or die, I am the Lord's. For us, I'll encourage you this week in response to this, to examine yourself again. Not because there's some pass-fail test at the end of your life, but because right now, the tests of your life have the opportunity to show forth a new way that Christ has shown faithfulness to you. It'll be different for each and every one of you. But the Apostle has shown us today how we as individuals, how we as church, in identifying the place where we have covered up our need for Christ, Christ yearns to enter in and show us more than we could have ever imagined for ourselves what faithfulness looks like, not because of our faithfulness, but because God is faithful. Let those words go with you into this good day.
Thanks be to God.